From the beautiful Art House Studios in Nashville, Tennessee, this is The Pivot, stories of people who've made a change. Welcome to The Pivot. My name is Andrew Osinga, and my guest today is John Tuminello. John and I have known each other for many years uh, in bigger circles, but uh, this was the longest conversation, honestly, we'd ever had together, and uh, it was great. When I first met John, like 15 years ago, he was really active helping indie musicians around Nashville uh, put on shows, get on the radio, do kind of early versions of podcasts and webcasting and things like that. Um, He was just super helpful to so many of us here in Nashville. But what I didn't know then is that he had already had a whole life in New York City as a Manhattan banker, truly life-changing experiences around 9-11. Man, John just has a wild story. It's been a treat to get to know him a little better this past year and his his family, his uh, wife and their sweet little baby girl. And it was a real treat to have him come by. I know you guys are going to love this interview, love this story. You're going to love this accent. I'm excited to introduce you to my friend, John Tuminello. So hey, this podcast is free, and I'm so glad that it's free. Uh, I love that I just get to put it out there and people get to listen. But if you like this podcast, would you do me a favor? I know that a lot of people are listening to this. I can see downloads that every week thousands and thousands of people are listening, and that's amazing. What I don't know is who the heck you people are. Unless somebody walks up to me and says, hey, listen to this interview last week. I thought it was great. Um, I have no idea who's actually listening. And honestly, we're getting to the point with the podcast where knowing who is listening would be very helpful. But as we move into another tier of sponsors and we start talking about kind of other resources around the pivot that might show up this year, it would be so helpful if we had a better picture of who's actually listening. So would you guys do this if you had five minutes Go to andrewosinga.com slash survey. That's andrewosinga.com slash survey. I'll be letting folks know about this for the next couple weeks, and then we'll close it down. But if you, in the month of February, are able to take five minutes to go and tell us a little bit about who you are, that would be so helpful. I love making this podcast for you, and this information will help us uh, do the best job we can moving forward. Thank you guys so much. Have you had a New York Italian accent before? No, I haven't. Well, half the people won't understand me. <laughs> Catherine claims the whole family couldn't understand me when they met me. <laughs> like I was from another country. You kind of are, right? Yeah, I know. Are you wait, Are you from, South. is it New York or New Jersey? New York. New York. Well, here's the deal. Staten Island. Staten Island. Okay. Staten Island is sandwiched between Brooklyn and New Jersey. Yeah. So technically, it's from New York, but apparently, the legend has it, which I believe the legend to be true, there was a boat ride, a boat race, way, way, way back when, between New York and New Jersey, and the winner got Staten Island. You're kidding. Yes, and so the winner was New York, because it was just an island between Brooklyn and New Jersey. Yeah. And so the winner was New York, and it became a borough. The Forgotten Borough, it's called. Staten Island have Staten Islanders. I always feel slighted. Okay, so you grew up on Staten Island. On the island, 17 miles, small little island. Yeah. 
at some point, you moved, did you move to Manhattan? I did. Or did you always live on the island? No, I, I moved to. I went to school at NYU. Okay. And I commuted. In terms of life's mistakes, <laughs> uh, I commuted to school, and only a mistake from the perspective. I think going away to college is a very transformative uh, period for people from young adulthood to adulthood to being on their own. But so I commuted, lived with my parents. My two brothers were out of the house already. I was the middle child, but acting as the youngest child. And so, and then I went to work after that, J.P. Morgan Chase, and I still lived at home for like four more years or something like that. And so I lived, I commuted a long time from Staten Island. You were a Island. Manhattan banker living with your parents. Yes, kind That's of pathetic. Awesome. Yeah, I know. And so uh, <laughs> I was a mama's boy, or am. And so then I moved, finally, I picked up, I'm moving to Manhattan. After being a banker for many years, going to school there for many years, I made the big move into a tiny 500-square-foot, two-bedroom, one-bath apartment on the Upper East Side. And how long did you live there? I lived in eight years in that apartment with a roommate, and then I fully you went were off You were in a 500-square-foot apartment with a roommate? For eight years. Dang. And then I went off on my own and got a 750-square-foot apartment by myself. Dang. For two years. I know, that was like living by far. Because I grew up in this, uh, my parents still live there, a two-bedroom, one-bath, about 1,000-square-foot bungalow. The 500 square feet with two people wasn't that bad because we were five people in about 1,000 square feet, one bath. Actually, they are both one bath, two-bedroom, one bath. And so I was used to being crammed. And, yeah. I, and so when I had 750 square feet by myself, it was like I was living in a Biltmore estate or something, you know. It was huge. <laughs> we have one room that's just dedicated to your art collection. Yeah. I had a, I had an office and a desk, and yes, it was wonderful. That's fantastic. So how did you get into banking? Well, I started out way back when. I started out as a paper boy for the Staten Island Advance, I think when I was eight years old. And looking back at it at the time, that means I delivered papers seven days a week and therefore, seven days a week at eight years old. At eight years old, and I should have been. It sounds playing like a story from the nineteen twenties. Let me tell you, the day, <laughs> and I was telling someone the other day. This when I feel really old. I think the paper was eighty-five cents for the whole week. Sure, this is how old I am, and so I did that. My brother had half the route, paper route quote. I had the other half, and so, um, so you couldn't. Like, you couldn't go away for the weekend unless someone took over your paper route. Yeah. So this responsibility at a very early age, and apparently, I don't know how this started, but I liked saving instead of buying. I wish I still had that uh, quality, but I don't. <laughs> and I was I was saving my money, and uh, I'd saved so much in this long period of time that one of my customers worked at the bank. It was Bankers Trust at the time. And I went in, and I, I don't know how old I was. And I said I wanted to open. I wanted to open up this certificate of deposit. And she's like, you know, you need this amount of money. I said, oh, I have that. And she said to me, why don't you just go buy a bicycle? <laughs> like, what are you thinking? And I was like, oh no, I want to open a bank account. And uh, I kind of liked it. And I, I decided to become a uh, a banker. I got I went in a management development program at J.P. Morgan Chase, and it was an incredible opportunity. And so it just I never. I don't know. I guess I set out to become a banker, but um, banker being a very broad terminology. Yeah, I worked was... on the consumer side of the bank. In okay. terms of when you hear banker, 
It's like the branches kind of banker. I was not this investment banker making gobs of money. They always asked me, do you want to go into the other side of the bank? And that to me was just not appealing from the the intensity of that. And so I worked in the branches. I worked in small business. I actually spent four years in human resources doing recruiting. Mm. And I spent four years working in the internet department. And so I worked in a bank. I was only really a banker, I would say, for about two years because it's when I worked in small business, running around trying to get loans for people in Brooklyn. And I worked in the branches. But after that, I kind of worked in a bank, but I was never, I wasn't a banker. I was a marketing guy and I was an HR guy. So I used to come to Nashville to recruit at Vanderbilt. Oh, okay. And uh, that was one of my first connections to Nashville and went to the Bluebird Cafe way back hmm. when. And so this was in the probably late 90s? This would have been the late 90s, yes. So you were working in internet banking in the late 90s. I was in the internet. Before strangely, I had an email address. Correct. And again, not intentional, something I sort of fell into. But um, if I think back now, I'm like, that's kind of strange that I worked in the internet like in its very early days. And I remember the point where there was one computer in one office and it had the internet on it. And that was it. <laughs> and we would go in there and like you had internet time. It was like playtime uh, for the kids. And you went in and there was this thing called – at the t eventually there was something called Google and you can hit – this little button, I think, is still there that says, I feel lucky or something. Oh, and yeah. it no one uses it. But back then, it was like, watch this. Type in Bruce Springsteen, and it goes to his website. And so, um, so yeah, I was doing internet banking way, way, way back when. Internet marketing and banking. So I worked on online banking at the time. And uh, that ended up, strangely or whatever, becoming my career hmm. for a long time, the internet. Well, so at some point, you moved to Nashville, but... I feel like one time you told me, that, were you like downtown during 9-11? Yes. And so uh, talk about a pivot yeah. in your life. Uh, so I lived in my um, seven, five, what was it, 500 square foot apartment with my uh, friend Sean. Uh, and uh, one morning he worked in publishing and rarely did he ever go out for work outside of Manhattan, but he had to go on some print run that day. And, you know, if you have two people trying to get to work at the same time, you have to, like, have a schedule of who uses the bathroom when to get ready. Yeah. And so this one day, the schedule was thrown off. And uh, he was there during my time, and I was not very happy about this. So we ended up having this fight and this argument about I'm going to be late for work. And um, when he left, some reason, some very strange feeling came over me. And I was like... We shouldn't have had that fight because one of us is not going to make it home tonight. And I don't know where this came from because it's not the type of thing I would ever kind of think. And so uh, I went to work, took the subway, fell asleep on the subway as I sometimes do. People actually do that. And I got to work and uh, I worked in J.P. Morgan Chase and One Chase Plaza, which is two blocks away. We say blocks in New York. Yeah. And... Um, all these people were standing outside on the plaza. And I saw this friend of mine. I was like, why is everyone standing outside? And she said, turn around. And the, both buildings were had already been hit. Both oh, wow. buildings were in flames. And then it was this whole craziness of what happened? Was this a mistake? And was this an accident? Was this intentional? So it was very weird. But there was not a sense of like crazy frenzy or anything. Because I think people just didn't understand what was going on. Yeah. 
And so um, I was trying to call my parents at the time to tell them. I think, again, before maybe cell phones were out, I guess, but no one had texting. Yeah. So I know there was this one phone line, or maybe I couldn't get through. I think I couldn't get through. And um, so I was trying to call my parents Probably and leave a, a message on their yeah. I, Motorola flip phone. And so we were standing there and trying to decide, so what do we do now? And um, that's when the first building fell. So you're and watching it. I'm watching this. And I don't know. I think the thinking back over years of discussing this on a couch, um, I think the sound is much was much more traumatic than the – I mean, obviously, visually, it was um, – I had ear problems for many years. And finally, some the doctor said to me, I think – the only the only explanation is someone who had a very bad trauma in in sound trauma and you've never said you had that and I was like oh yes there was sound trauma sound trauma of like listening to this think about a hundred story building falling down how that must sound and so basically that happened and complete frenzy chaos and I we had a two story glass lobby and I ran into these. Um, revolving doors and got stuck in these revolving doors and the entire it was basically this white plume of of smoke coming towards us and uh people were literally running for their lives because they didn't know what was going on and so i got stuck in this uh revolving door and then it was all covered in you know smoke and soot and then i went into the bank and we have like several layers down several levels down to the cafeterias and the vaults and things like that so they put us or i went down to the cafeteria which is like two levels down but then they had to shut off all the HABAC systems because of the um, the air, and so we were laying down on the floor in you know this building, and from an oxygen perspective, like we've shut off all the HVAC, you know, you should go down on the floor, and so I'm there, obviously pretty tra- traumatized, and it hits me, one of us is not going to make it home tonight, mm. and. When the building fell, it sounded like it was an explosion as opposed to the building falling. I think it was just the building falling. So you kind of didn't know what the heck was going on outside. And that moment in time, I decided, well, this is it. I'm 34 years old. I'm a single banker in New York City, and I'm going to die two levels down in the basement of J.P. Morgan Chase building. And... Obviously, that has been the most pivotal moment of my life in terms of reevaluating everything that I was, did, spent my time on. Yeah. And so um, fast forward to New Year's Eve, December 31st, 2001, I was thinking about how did I end up being like at that point 13, 14 years as a banker? It's I... I mean, I guess it's something I, as I mentioned, I enjoyed when I had a paper round, but I didn't expect that was going to be my life. Like I'm going to be a banker, and so I was always obsessed, lived and breathed music. And when I went to NYU, I spent two years in humanities and the arts, and I spent two years in business. It's kind of hedging my bets on both sides of things. Mm-hmm. And on the corner of Fourth and Broadway is Tower Records, which you know the greatest store in the world. There's a great documentary by Colin Hanks, if you've ever seen it, about really? Tower Records. And I used to go every day at lunchtime to Tower Records. I didn't hang out with friends. I just went to Tower Records and I read Billboard magazine. I looked at the charts and looked at the, I guess, CD singles at the time and just lived and breathed music and absolutely loved it and um, grew up you know, with MTV. But 
um, I decided I should take a more uh, responsible path and become a banker. And so I thought about what I really loved was music. And I spent probably about eight years every night writing song lyrics. Hmm. And I never had um, taken an instrument, so I can't play anything. And so they might have been poems, but I had literally a box of 500 songs that I had written. And I knew I wanted to work in music. I always wanted to work in radio. Uh, I never thought I was could be a successful musician, but I decided to take guitar and voice lessons. So I signed up for guitar lessons, and I signed up for voice lessons. And throughout all this, the guy who was giving me guitar lessons started doing some co-writing with me. I didn't even know what that was because mm. I didn't live in Nashville. And the guy who was giving me voice lessons, he manages, He was lead singer of a hard rock band, and he... Um, he asked me to manage them. Why don't you quit your job at J.P. Morgan Chase and manage our band? And I was like, could you pay anything? No, but it would be great. Wow, this is like, this is a movie script. So I didn't do that. So I was, I worked by day as banker and by night I was uh, managing a band and then they convinced me, you should record an album. It's like, I have your no own idea. Album. My own album, you should record an album. And so I recorded an album and it, so I ended up recording an album, I ended up, working with this band on their album and f said some way I'm going to get myself out of this banking career, but I don't know how because I can't afford, I have this apartment and this life, I can't afford to live on a radio salary in New York. And um, I took a trip to Nashville. There was some seminar at the, at the Bell Court and I took a trip to Nashville and I came home and I remember telling my parents, I'm moving to Nashville. They're like, really? How are you moving to Nashville? I don't know. I don't know how and I don't know when, but... I was sitting in front of the Parthenon and I decided I'm going to move here and work in music industry. And then maybe six months later or so, J.P. Morgan Chase and Bank One had a merger and they were giving severance packages. And since I had worked for 15 years, I got a year's pay wow. and a year of medical insurance. And a lot of people had family, so they didn't want to be laid off. And I was like, oh, please, yeah. paid sabbatical. <laughs> So my cousin and I packed our bags and we moved to Nashville. We rented a uh, a room or two rooms in this guy's house and I slept on an air mattress off White Bridge Road for several months. And uh, since I was still on severance, I didn't have to work. I was at this very luxurious point in my life for a year, I didn't have to work. So I became an usher at the Ryman. You did. And then I... I did. I loved it. And then I worked as an intern at the Hat Show print shop. Wow. The oldest intern I think they've ever had. They would tell people, <laughs> this guy's an MBA from Columbia University and was a vice president of J.P. Morgan Chase. And he decided he wanted to instead intern at the Hat Show print shop. Isn't this a great story? And so I did the two of them and I loved it. And Severance ended. And I was like, time to get a job. So I interviewed at some record labels and I interviewed at a radio station. I got this job at... Jack FM mm -hmm. and Mix 92.9, and it was the digital marketing director because I loved music and knew the internet. And that is how I ended up in working in Nashville and moving into a music job. Yeah, and that's when I met you. you were... That's when you met me. Yeah. So we, um, John Dykus, yep. who had gone to Belmont um, in music school, 
he he ended up coming in working in the department and we ended up starting up music city unsigned and so we both had this love of indie music and emerging artists and we were working at adult contemporary in an 80s station but we really like so you're playing celine dion all day but we're listening to lightning 100 and we're like <laughs> why can't we work at lightning 100 and so we started this it was originally was called never came out publicly but it was jack unsigned we were trying to localize the jack fm brand okay yeah, because yeah. it was like a you know it, it, they had many jack fms across the country and people didn't realize that this was all in nashville so we came up with this idea jack unsigned and then they're like no we don't like that so we came up with music city unsigned and the first ever artist was um matt wartz hmm. and i every month interviewed someone on a uh i guess podcast i never thought about that and um, we picked like an artist a month. Because you we could download to the it site. from yeah. the website. Yeah, it was on the website. And so um, we did a video of the one artist. I think we did it as a video cast. So we ended up having this community of about a hundred artists. You being one of them. And um, I was just thinking this morning that we recorded a Christmas album. Yeah. And you have this very romantic, wonderful song called "This Year" on oh. that. I haven't. Heard Which it in is, a while. Oh, yeah. I'm going to go listen to it today. And so we recorded this Christmas album that you're on, um, Small World Story. And so I did that job for several years. And after a while, it turned um, very corporate like my banking job because they realized I was good at selling. And so I was doing all these things. I started interviewing artists. I had this, I made another little video cast and I would call it Soundcheck, and someone would play in Nashville, and I would interview them. So I started doing a lot of creative things, but it was like, oh, look, you're really good at raising money. So over time, my job became 100% about having all these revenue goals. And it's like um, $500,000 in revenue. And um, I was good at that, but I, again, really wanted to do the creative side, but the other side made the money. And so I realized after five years of being in Nashville, I'm in this job where it's all about, I feel like a banker at a um, radio station. Hmm. And so I decided that I had to do another change in my career and didn't know what it was. And um, at the time, I saw this announcement that uh, from BMI that this series was starting up called Musician's Corner. And Jody Williams was announcing it from BMI and Kristen Dabbs, who I knew yeah. from Music City and Sign. She was the executive director. And I went next door to John Dyka's office and I was like, you know what, I would like my career at some point be the point where when somebody starts something like that, they think about me for a potential position to run such a thing. And don't you know, a year later, strangely enough, I was running that program because I was hmm. going to go work with Kristen and be the assistant. And she decided, Sugar and the Hilos was starting up at the time, she decided to focus solely on Trent and their Ready Set Records. And so I ended up just finding myself in this new job running this music series, which was a um, a really good transition from what I had done with artists in Music City Unsigned. Yeah, which was, uh, that was a concert series right outside the Parthenon. Yes. In the lawn of the of Centennial Park, right by where you decided to move to Nashville. Correct. So strangely, in thinking about it, eight years after deciding that, I was now running this program that was a music program right there. And That's amazing. none of it was intentional or planned or I thought I'd be working on Music Row, Sony Music, in a record label in the marketing department. Yeah. And I found myself there from a very strange journey. And so that was once a week, a whole day of 
concerts in, the, in just in the park. Correct. Summer's uh, afternoon. I, it started out May, June, September, October. Every Saturday, it was really small in the beginning, grew really big. I, I emceed. I've mm-hmm. emceed 148. I'm, I'm retired. I'm retiring. <laughs> I haven't hit 150, but so I emceed 148 of the shows. And Justin Tam, mm-hmm. who uh, I met from John Dykus also, was in this band quote which was a Music City and signed artist. And then Justin, and we ended up bringing him in as a partner. Mm-hmm. So then Music City and Sign became just an additional person. He ended up moving on to Humming House. But I didn't know anything about production. And so I'm running this concert series and I don't know anything about running a concert series. So I called <laughs> Justin Tam up and I said, I have a new job for you. I have a new job, now you have a new job. You're gonna come work as the production director for this musician's corner. Yeah. Okay. And so he and I, strangely, we were doing Music City Unsigned. We were now getting paid for what we love to do, and we started running Musicians Corner together. Yeah. And um, was that a full time job? It started out as a, a part time job, and I actually was part time then at the radio station and part time okay. at this job, and I again was torn between the two. And the challenge was it didn't have its own, you know, funding. And so I had to be responsible for raising the funding. So I we, I sat down at this meeting. So it was all like sponsor. All sponsors. Yeah. And I sat down and Paul Worley was one of the founders. Um, and they said to me, so just to let you know, there's about four months of funding here. And if you choose to take this on full time, you're going to be the one responsible for making or breaking it. And so I quit the um, radio station job to take this other job that was uh, that had four months of you know security in it and uh, it worked out that was 2011 and now we're in 2018 so I did that for several years and then over time so the parent organization is the Conservancy for the Parthenon and Centennial Park so with oh, a, really? a 501c3 friends group support group for a park so it was like working for this park supports organization, but running this music program, very entrepreneurial because a very small organization. And over time, like I did at the radio station, I guess, I started taking on more responsibilities at the Conservancy and and had to decide what to do about running or not running Musician's Corner because um, I couldn't do it all, obviously. And so um, Justin Branham, another... Musician who yeah. I met from Music City Unsigned. He produced his first record. Well, look at this. Sweet, so sweet I guy. had lunch with him. And so now he runs Musicians Corner. He's been doing so for the last year and a half or so. And um, I am, as of January 1st, completely moving to a new job. Uh, my boss retired. And so I'm going to be the executive director of the Conservancy for the Parthenon Centennial Park and not doing any Musicians' Corner, although Musicians' Corner is part of our organization, so I'll still have a lot of involvement with it. So I'm, I'm hanging up my hosting hat. So it's technically the first time now in Nashville I'm really in a non-music job, even though this music program is the biggest program we have. So Justin's running yeah. Musicians' Corner. We have this great organization where I'm going to be doing a lot of new things. In yeah, the year. so you built this concert series to where it's, clearly self-sustaining it's got its own staff and and so now what is what does your job look like the executive director of wait, what is it now? the conservancy for the parthenon and centennial park it it's is a long, long one it's a long one uh <laughs> so basically most sit so in in the mo- the model in new york city is the central park conservancy mm-hmm. and a lot of cities over the years have transitioned to the um a, pr- a private group 
running a public park because cities don't have all the money for the infrastructure and to run it. So in New York, 100% of the expenses for Central Park are run by the Central Park Conservancy, a 501c3. In other cities like Nashville, they're more support groups. The city still maintains the park. It's the city staff, and there's these groups of nonprofit organizations that say, we'll help fund things you can't. So now our mission is preserving, enhancing, and sharing the Parthenon and Centennial Park. So we've been doing a revitalization, which is the preserving and enhancing of the park. But then the sharing comes in with into the programming. So basically, it's presenting free arts programming in Nashville, one at Musician's Corner within Kidsville and within a lot of things we do in the Parthenon. And then it's this protecting the urban green space as a support organization for a park. So it is a little bit of everything. And since it's a small nonprofit of like seven people, it has it's has a lot of entrepreneurial aspects to it where you're not some huge corporation that you're working for. So I'll get to do a little bit of everything. Some of it would be fundraising, sponsorships, running our um, Kidsville programming, we're starting up a concert series inside the Parthenon called oh, wow. Echo. Oh, cool. This has not been announced anywhere, but um, we're going to do like a chamber music series. So Justin Tam, this is something wow. he's going to run. And we're going to have some classical music, maybe some jazz music, and then some choral music. We're going to start out, um, I think, do six of them every other month next year. So um, so there's still connections within there of music. Yeah. Hey, let's start another music program. And so, um, but the core of my job is running the support organization and kind of caring for the park, enhancing the park, and making sure we have this great programming that kind of brings the community together because it is our central park. And so um, we do a lot on the programming side. That's amazing. My daughter, my youngest daughter took ballet for a little bit at the Kidsville. No, the ballet would be at the Nashville Performing Arts Studios. Oh, yeah. So in the park, there's the Parthenon. There's the Centennial Art Center, which people, a lot of people don't know about this, but they have really inexpensive and wonderful painting and pottery classes oh, wow. in the Art Center. And then in the Performing Arts Studio, that's where they have their jam band se- that students can join and, and learn music. And that's where the dance division is. And so um, they do like the Nutcracker every year. Mm-hmm. And so that's where um, young people can learn to dance. So there's a lot of things that go on in the park that aren't what we're doing, Got but uh, those two areas are are run by Metro Parks. So we were texting a little bit to try to find time for you to come do this. And you were, at one point you were going to like a, some sort of a city council open. Was it the uh, parks board? Potentially parks board meeting? Yeah, it was something. And I I responded to you. I said, that sounds like an episode of Parks and Rec. And you said, it's exactly an episode of Parks and Rec. Yeah, it's kind of funny because (laughs) our offices are in the, um, the Parks and Rec building. And so uh, we're this small nonprofit in the corner of a Parks and Rec building. And yes, especially when they have meetings like that, there is the park board comes in and they bring the TV cameras because it's on like the the local Mm -hmm. government TV station. And then all these folks are there and, and, you know, sometimes we'll have to present or we'll be on the agenda for something. But um, there's a lot of things that that are very true. It's it's like the office, you know, there's a lot of things that just like, wow, that's that really happens. And so <laughs> um, part of the job is a lot working with Parks and Rec side, and then a lot of it is the complete other side, you know, music and art programming. Yeah. So um, 
So that starts here in a couple of weeks, that new role. January 1st is the new role, and um, I'm excited for it. I mean, it's yeah. uh, it's not a clean slate because I've been at the organization for eight years, but it's a clean slate from the perspective of what should I make this job and what would be the focus of our organization for this next chapter. The organization's been around since the 80s, and it you know in the last 10 years, it's been – free access to the arts for people of all socioeconomic groups in Nashville. Mm. And that that itself wasn't even intentional. Musicians Corner started up. It was free. It grew really big. We supported artists. We have these great concerts for the community. Kidsville program started up. We do every week in the Parthenon. Every Saturday is Kidsville at the Parthenon, and it's free for families. We do a lot on education and literacy and music. And we made that program free. And then all of a sudden, in thinking about what are our core strengths? What do we do well as an organization? It was, well, there's not a lot of people in Nashville that are actually doing this, that all their programming is free. Yeah. And so um, I'm kind of taking that as our core mission, in addition to obviously preserving and enhancing the park and looking at what would our next kind of step be in that mission of trying to um, not make a barrier to entry that I cannot afford a ticket at the symphony to see the Preservation Hall Jazz Band, as an example. Mm -hmm. They played at Musicians Corner for free. And so Paul Worley said, it's kind of like, Musicians Corner is kind of like the old days of radio because it's not genre specific at all. Yeah. It's like, you don't like this band, or you never heard of it, you don't have to turn the dial. The next band is very different. And so Musicians Corner has definitely turned into this discovery platform. Yeah, And... Um, so from that perspective, it's exciting with the job that there's a lot of diversity in the job itself about responsibilities and there's a lot of open-endedness to what do we want to create new for the city. That's really cool. Now, that's not the only new role that you're stepping into. I mean, recently, you just became a dad a year ago? That's a new role. Ten months. Ten months. Talk about role change. <laughs> I, I got married at 50. And um, we had our first baby at uh, 51. And so my wife is 40 and I'm 50. And we're like, well, we do not have the luxury of waiting. to like, <laughs> let's be newlyweds for several years. If we want to have kids, we're going to need to do this. And so we have a beautiful little daughter, Tessa, and she was due on St. Patrick's Day, March 16th. And she decided to arrive on January 31st, six weeks early. And we lived in the NICU for, at Vanderbilt. Um, we stayed at the wonderful Vanderbilt Children's Hospital in this family room. So three weeks she was mm -hmm. in the hospital. And talk about a, you know, as you know, being a dad, a crazy, trying, troubling time about putting your priorities in order. And um, she's wonderful and she's doing wonderful and it's very healthy and she's getting big and she's crawling. But a very major transition from being single and living on my own for all these years to being married and then all, and then shortly thereafter being a dad. But there is nothing like that. I mean, it's just an incredible thing, being a father. Hmm. So how, how has that changed what you are doing with the conservancy, with your sort of, you get up in the morning and you have things to do? Correct. When you, yeah. Does it, has that, has that, given any sort of shift to your sort of motivation or sure well there's always the craving for work personal balance but 
I tend to be a workaholic. And in between all this, one of my friends said, you should come teach at Lipscomb. And so I teach now at night. What? At, I know. I teach marketing, digital marketing and entrepreneurship at Lipscomb. But it's only one day a week. I, <laughs> I tell my wife this. It's just one day a week. But, you know, it adds up. Try grading the papers and everything. And so I do have, uh, from a work personal balance side, um, there's obviously the core day job. And then I decided I should teach. And I'm always doing something different. But um, I thankfully have a great deal of flexibility in my job. Because, again, we're kind of like a small... I call it a results-oriented workplace mm-hmm. about get your work done and you can get a lot of flexibility with that. So there's the reward along with that, like meet your goals. And the people that work there, we're, we're working basically in an arts nonprofit. And if you wanted to just make a lot of money, and might put on suits and go to a more corporate job and it might be a lot more structure. So I do have the, uh, the great kind of flexibility of yeah. how I manage my day. We're also very fortunate that Catherine stays home as a stay-at-home mom. And so that adds a, another great deal of flexibility there. So obviously the um, work personal balance, when you're single, you uh, I like working and I would just work all the time. And now I realize I get home and uh, I need to be present in the age of technology and iPads and cell phones. And that, is, that is a hard thing. Being present sometimes. is a major challenge. And I'm one of those people that um, – I feel like I, I need to answer every email in 30 seconds of when it comes in. and you can't just sit there. Like it's just weighing heavily on my shoulders that someone sent me an email. So uh, it is a constant struggle with that. But thankfully, I'm home in the mornings, get to spend time with the family, go to work, get home at a decent hour. I mean, that's the big difference between, you know, the South and Nashville versus, say, working in Manhattan and New York. You know, my mm. father left every morning at 8 a.m. and got home every night at 7 p.m. and sometimes had to work on weekends and, you know, the the old days of of the dad, say, just working, working, working. And there's this great flexibility in terms of, um, you know, in the environment about you don't have the two-hour commute to work. You know, I work five minutes from the office and so it adds a lot more time I can spend with the family. So it's really, it is definitely enriching of being able to, one, focus on the career side and two, focus on the family side. But the one big change in my thinking is that I always had a hand in our Kidsville program. Mm. But I never had kids. I have a bunch of nieces and nephews, but it never connected with me the way it needed to connect. So now having a daughter and she comes to Kidsville at the Parthenon and I'm thinking about education and literacy and all these things yeah. about children, that that part of it becomes much more central to my thinking about what's important for the conservancy to focus on. And so it makes me more excited to focus on our children's programming and education. Do you feel like at this point Nashville is home for you? Is it, would you ever Nashville's move back 100% to New York? home. Um, it's, not, it's interesting. You know, when I made the move, it was kind of like I left all my family and friends behind in New York, and it was very strange for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And I slowly you know, made new friends. And I have such an amazing group of friends that are by far my family and my brothers. And it's, um, it is certainly home. And it just, it just feels like home. Um, Catherine is, my wife, Catherine is from Valley Cruises, North Carolina and the Appalachian mountains outside of uh, Boone. And it is beautiful up there. And her family lives on top of a waterfall and that's where we got married and it's you you can't write these things it's so beautiful we got married 
by this creek and um, we're going to build a vacation home there because one of the things that we'd really like is our daughter to grow up and experience that in addition to Nashville. Yeah. So um, I think, you know, over time we'll probably try to spend a few weeks there and maybe I can work remotely there from the summers. And so that probably will, will you know, always be a second home. But um, yeah, I, I visited Nashville in, sorry, I visited New York for Thanksgiving. My father is a, a professional Santa Claus. And okay, tell me everything. Well, some would say he's the most famous Santa in New York, and there's a rumor that he's the Macy's Day Parade Santa because he was in a Macy's commercial, and there became this myth in Nashville when I worked at the radio station that people would just say John's dad's the Macy's Day Parade Santa, and I used to always correct them, and then it started happening. We would be in business meetings, and I was yeah. like, I can't be keep correcting people that this is wrong, so let's just go with it. <laughs> so, so many people think that my father's the Macy's Day Parade Santa, and I do never correct them anymore. And But he's been at this uh, store, ABC Carpet and Home, for 27 years as mm -hmm. Santa Claus. And when we went up there, um, of course, my daughter needed to sit oh, in Santa's absolutely. lap. And they, somebody's doing a documentary film on this man who's been Santa. He's retiring after 27 years in this one store. And all these kids grew up with him and these families. And they're doing a documentary film. So they interviewed me and my brother. And Tessa got to be in the film and said, oh my goodness. Gaga. And um, so we had to go see... You know, we had to go see Santa, so we brought we brought her up there. We went to see Santa, and I hadn't been in Manhattan for a while. And of course, the the pace, I can never say I'm a Southerner, but you know, the pace is so different. And you know, we think there's traffic and we think there's crowds, and but it is just still night and day. And so, uh, it's now become a wonderful place to visit, but home <laughs> is you know home is in Nashville. That's great. So you're gonna be. In a documentary about your father retiring as a, as a Santa Claus, that's the documentary. Yes, about his life career as Santa Claus. For, my brother went to my older brother Tommy went to film school, mm -hmm. and so um, there's always been a love of film. My father's been an actor. He he's been Santa on everything. David Letterman. He's out in the final scene of the Stephen Colbert Report, driving with the, Stephen, the Santa that with, yeah Abe with, Lincoln and Alex Trebek and what my dad, dad driving. I know. Does these random Santa things, and so um, when I was in that hiatus between is that jobs, a full time job, like he's retired, Santa all he's year? eighty-one. Now okay. he worked at a law firm for thirty-five years. He's right. eighty-one, and it's you know six you know, weeks a year, but it's it's a great gig, and it's one of those things. The older you get, you know, the better it is. You're Santa Claus. Yeah. Um, I I ended up volunteering for two years at Sundance as an usher because you know I was this I had this ushering skills and I, I wanted to experience the Sundance <laughs> Film Festival so I did that for two years and my father was in a movie way back when called Pie and it had been at Sundance he didn't go hmm. and so I was talking to this guy doing the documentary and I was like are we going to Sundance because you know like is this can this movie make it to Sundance because we can all go as a family um, and so that's my vision is that it will make it to Sundance and we'll, we'll go to Park City and there'll be a Santa Claus film and I would have made it on the screens of Sundance. It's a it's long amazing. shot, but yeah, nothing I did to make it happen. But you know, yeah. Well, I'm glad you're here, and I, it's it's amazing to hear not just that you've made Nashville home, but how you're now working to make Nashville better for the rest of Nashville. That's pretty amazing. It's beautiful. Every little bit that every little person can do to make it. You know, living in a creative community, it's just it's incredible 
have so many creative people doing so many different things. And it's not just artists, it's also a lot of entrepreneurs. And I think that's what's really special about Nashville as a city is that there's so many creative people there's so many small businesses and there's so many different types of artists and there's so much types of music and people think we're just uh, country music and they, the bachelorette capital of the world or second and, you know, uh, but it's, it's a great community to, uh, you know, be artistic in. And although I don't fully work on the side of creating the art, that being able to help support artists and promote it and help therefore then deliver it to the city in an enriching basis and having just a little tiny hand in that is, I mean, from a career perspective, it's super, it's super rewarding. That's amazing, man. Well, thank you so much for your time. No, today. thank you. Thank treat. you for having me. Love it. That was great. Thank you so much, John. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you want to find out more about what John has been doing over at Centennial Park, if you want to find out about the concerts that they're hosting there all year, which are so fun. I've played a few over the years, and it is, man, it's just so fun. So many people come from all around town. They've got stuff for kids, free concerts, amazing artists in the middle of a beautiful park. Uh, those happen throughout the year, and you can find that information at musicianscornernashville.com. If you haven't experienced that, you would love it. Again, if you listen to The Pivot and you want to help us out, go to andrewosinga.com slash survey, a short anonymous survey, and tell us a little bit about yourself. That would be so helpful for us. Thank you. Hope you've enjoyed this episode. I know you're going to love next week, so check back. Hope you guys have a great week. Now go do something awesome.